While we're waiting for the last few people to come in, I'll just test this. That sounds quite loud. Is it too loud or is it fine? It's on the edge of too loud. Maybe would it be okay to turn it down a little? No. I see some no's. Yes. Oh, dear. <laughs> little, but not very much. Okay, so does that still seem satisfactory? Yep, okay, good. So here we are, many days into the retreat. I would say how many, but I don't know either. (laughs) And you've been cultivating this steadiness of mind, this unification of mind. You've been practicing it. Sitting, walking, eating, when you get up in the morning, when you go to bed at night. And what we can discern from talking to you is you're getting the hang of it. Can you feel that? Yeah. So now we're going to change it. Because that is the point, that we get this collected and unified mind. And you've heard us talking, we've been hinting at this all the way along, right? That this unified, powerful mind then has capabilities. It has capabilities to see, and it has the capability we can put it where We can put our attention where we want, and it will stay there. Sometimes it goes to where we don't want, and we've talked about that, and it stays there too. But you're getting more and more capacity to put it where you want and have it stay. So what do we do now with this unified mind? And of course, there's always more, you know, you're probably saying, well, yeah, I'm kind of unified, but... I could do some more. You can always do more, of course. So it's good to say unified enough, concentrated enough. And there's the sutta, there's a sutta called the Samadhi Sutta, so about concentration. And in it, the Buddha says, develop concentration practitioners. 
a concentrated practitioner discerns things as they actually are present. And what does one discern as it is actually present? One discerns as it actually is present that the I is impermanent. Forms are impermanent. Eye consciousness is impermanent. Eye contact is impermanent. Whatever arises in dependence on eye contact, experienced either as pleasure or as pain, or as neither pleasure nor pain, that too is impermanent. And then he goes on, as these suttas tend to, and says it for the ear, for the nose, for the tongue and taste, for the body, and for the mind. Very simple sutta. And he ends with, so develop concentration practitioners. A concentrated practitioner discerns things as they actually are present. So it's interesting, this sutta entitled Samadhi, concentration sutta, is actually pointing to what the the potential for what the concentrated mind can discern. And this really is pointing to this collecting of the minds as a means, as a means towards the next step in the unfolding. Seeing the Dhamma, the truth, the way things are. Upandita says, concentration is the proximate cause for the unfolding of wisdom. This is very important. Once the mind is quiet and still, there is space for wisdom to arise. And you might recall at the end of the last talk I gave, I talked about this progression. We were talking about happiness and gladness and joy and the unfolding. And I'm going to read it again, but I'm going to read one more clause than I did last time. For one who is glad, there is no need for an act of will. It is natural for one glad at heart that joy arises in them. For one who has a deep inner joy, there is no need for an act of will. It is natural for one of joyful mind that their body will be tranquil. For one of tranquil body, there is no need for an act of will. It is natural for one who is tranquil that they will feel happiness. For one who is happy, there is no need for an act of will. It is natural for one who is happy that their mind will be concentrated. And now we move to the next piece. For one who is concentrated, there is no need for an act of will. May I know and see reality as it is, for it is natural for a concentrated mind to know and see reality as it is. So this movement to see the nature of reality, to see the Dhamma, the truth of things. And this has a wonderful phrase in the teachings Yata Bhutta Nanadasana. And the Yata Bhutta, I'll keep coming back to, 
but the Yata Bhuta Nana Dasana is the knowledge and vision of things as they are. You've probably heard that phrase, the knowledge and vision of things as they are. And um, Ajahn Mahabhua said, the mind knows and sees things as they are within and without, through and through, and then stays put with purity. Yata Bhutta understands things as they really are. Nanamolitera puts it as understanding how it has come to be, how it is, how things exist. Very fundamental. And this is the foundation of wisdom. This is, when we talk about wisdom, we're talking about seeing things as they really are and then being able to respond from that place of wisdom in the world. And we've been talking about the fact that concentration, it temporarily suppresses greed, aversion, and delusion. And Guy brought in the fact, fact that it is actually an antidote to uh, lust or greed. And you've probably felt that. As you feel contentment, as you feel that self-contained contentment, you realize you don't need something else. That phrase that you may have heard, everything you need is already here, starts to make sense in this contented mind. And it's true that though it has an effect, concentration does, on this leaning forward and wanting things, concentration is not continuous. When people say, okay, how do I take the practice home? And we don't say, oh, take your supremely concentrated mind and go about your daily life. That would be a recipe for failure, I'm afraid. But what can we take home? We can take home wisdom. And so this movement from concentration to wisdom is a movement from what is a temporary uprooting, a temporary contentment, to the potential for a lasting contentment. And the concentration and the contentment we know in it gives us the ground, gives us the the recognition, a knowing about it. Just even right now, as I'm talking to you, let yourself sense the contentment that you have touched, the calm, the stillness, whatever word resonates for you. And see if you can recognize that in this moment, that isn't here in full force. Like it's not got the perhaps the depth at the deepest moment of your practice. But there's still a reference to it, a knowing of what's possible. 
And this is very useful. We take this into our practice. And we value that contentment. And this helps us meet the pull and push of wanting and not wanting, the sensual desires that come up. This helps us as we start to open up our sense gates to all the different experiences. Because we realize as we open up and we start to navigate the complexity that there is a contentment that is beyond those things that we think we, that we, think we want. And key to this understanding is the understanding and this willingness to meet things as they change, as was pointed out in that Samadhi Sutta, to touch the impermanence and not be pulled off, to be able to meet that and let it come and go and come into profound relationship with impermanence. This is again from the, from the Buddha. One possesses wisdom that understands the arising and disappearance, which is noble and penetrating, and which leads to the destruction of suffering. So he's linking directly the understanding of impermanence to the release from suffering. And there's a, a lovely um, story in the suttas of the Buddha taking Rahula, his son. And at this point, I think I've seen in the commentaries, maybe his son at this point is 21, and he sees that his mind is ripe for awakening. And they go out into the woods. And they go out and they sit at the root of a tree. And the Buddha and the Rahula sit down. And supposedly, as the story goes, a whole bunch of devas came along. They wanted to, if the Buddha was going to give special instructions to his son, they wanted to hear him. So they are all surrounded by the devas. And the Buddha proceeded to ask Rahula about the nature of permanent, what is permanence. And he asks, what do you think, Rahula? Is the I permanent or impermanent? And he says, impermanent, sir. And goes on to, and says, is it, and is that which is impermanent, easeful or stressful? You could substitute satisfactory or non-satisfactory, dukkha or not dukkha. And he says, dukkha, sir. So here again, the Buddha is tying directly the recognition of the impermanence with the stressful, unsatisfactory nature. And he goes through and he talks about each sense organ and is it permanent or impermanent? And is what is impermanent, pleasant, or suffering? And Rahula acknowledges that each one is impermanent, 
and each one is unsatisfactory or subject to suffering. And then very interestingly, the Buddha pulls in the third of what you may have heard of as the characteristics or the three uh, ways of seeing. He He asks, is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. And Rahula says, no, no. What is impermanent and suffering, that's not how I want to define myself. And so he proceeds to go through all the different categories and speaks to it, the six sensates. And then at the end, at the bottom of the sutta, the last part, that is what the Blessed One said. Gratified, Venerable Rahula, delighted in the Blessed One's words. And while this explanation was being given, Venerable Rahula's mind, through lack of clinging, was released from effluence, meaning released from a sort of the ongoing pouring out of um, the taints of greed, aversion, and delusion. And to those many thousands of devas, there arose the dustless, stainless Dhamma I. Whatever is subject to origination is all subject to cessation. So this is the insight that leads to the awakening of Rahula. And very interestingly, this is the insight that more often than any other in the suttas, this is the insight that leads to awakening. Again and again, the dustless, the, the dust is cleared from the eyes and they see that things arise and pass. And it's talked about in relationship to the five aggregates, the impermanent nature of those, to Vedna, pleasure, pain, neutral, talked about in terms of views and opinions, the taints, the everything, the impermanent nature of them. So when we talk about the truth of things the way they are, we are pointing to this impermanence, the suffering it causes us, and the non-identification, the non-not calling that imperm- those impermanent things and the suffering they cause self. So we talk about this, and as I talk about it, you have all heard, read, met impermanence. But the point that I'm making here, and the Buddha was making, is that this understanding of impermanence sinks deeper and deeper in us. And with that collected and concentrated mind, that we can see the impermanence with a fresh and clearer attention. These are really practice instructions to see the impermanence. And in in some ways, like I said, it's obvious. We see it all the time. We can see it 
on all sorts of levels, on the gross level, right? You know, there's geologic time, there's mountains that we have heard rise and fall. We see the years go by, seasons come and go. The moon gets full, wanes, a day. And sometimes it kind of sinks in. That's one of the things about a sunset, isn't it? That bittersweet, beautiful feeling of a sunset. There's something poignant in it because there's some part of us that recognizes not just another day is gone, but, oh, another day is gone. And we see that in the comings and goings around us, people we care about leave or we lose them. We can see it in our own. At some point we start to really pay attention and see our own mortality, our own aging. What we do, how we behave, changes. Here's a poem for you called A Wave. Each wave follows the form, dancing the pattern with its own variation. Crashing, fanning, slithering up the beach, the foam-wet squiggle line left as its only memorial. Two arms, two legs, a head and a heart, nothing special here. And yet, only once will this happen. Only once will these eyes rest on the place where the wave was, only once will this heart wait, wait for the vast ocean to break upon the shore in this single precious wave. Only once will this heart break open and tears fall, leaving just this salt water on sand. In our practice, we start to get more and more intimate, closer in with this impermanence. We see it with the inhale, and the inhale changes to an exhale, a sound. There's a different way you can pay attention to a sound. When we start seeing that the sound has a beginning, perhaps a middle that is very brief or longer, and an end. It comes and it goes. But sometimes in this process, what we're breaking through, what we're, what we're having to um, find our way through to see the truth of this is the confusion that we carry around, that we don't see things as impermanent. We really see the permanence of them. I remember the first time that this, I really saw this on a really big, on a big scale. I was, um, I was uh, fairly new to climbing big things. And I was in Yosemite. And if you've seen Yosemite, you've probably seen a picture of El Capitan. It's this huge, massive, solid, rock 
vertical, and from a distance it looks smooth and impenetrable. And I was walking up to the base of it to climb it. And as, I, as you get close to the base, you're walking through a forest. And as you get close to the base, there aren't very many trees. And there's some of them that are fractured, have been knocked down. And you start looking along the base, and there's all these very fresh-looking sharp-edged, very beautiful granite rocks. And there's not much growing next to the base. And you start to realize, this thing's falling apart. It really is. It is not the solid thing it looks like from a distance. And I remember feeling that very definitively once on up. It was actually in Yosemite, which has the unfortunate um, coincidence of not being very far from earthquake faults. And I was up on a climb in Yosemite and everything started shaking. So now not only is this thing falling apart, but it's moving And I sort of, it was like, okay, is what I'm holding on to going to fall down? Sometimes even what, you know, we think something is permanent. But when we look a little closer, not so much. This is from Rumi. No one ever sees that last moment, the eroded rock becomes sand. But if they did, they would hear the sea singing. One of the things that confuses us is just the way language intersects with stuff, with things, is our language is based largely in nouns. We have a noun for something. So, you know, whether it's a rock, a tree, a person. And in that, we, we, the noun makes it sound like that thing is the same now and the same later. The tree is a really good example. There's a tree out in the courtyard here. Some of you I know have been around here long enough that there was a time that now seems not very long ago or very long ago, depending on your mood, that it was just this little thing that was planted, not very tall at all. You could, you could probably reach to the top of it. And it was a little bit of a stretch to call it a tree. It was a potted plant that got put in the courtyard. But then each year, it's a little bigger. And before it ever got here, that oak was an acorn. And before that, it was on another tree. And then at some point, we call it, start calling it a tree. 
But the tree doesn't stop growing and just stick to this definition we have of it. We're giving the name tree to something that's dynamic, alive, that's in constant communication with the sun and the water, with the animals that live in it. It's way more lively than that word tree. Can you remember as a kid when you drew that kind of tree? You know, that was the ultimate, like, simplification noun stuck in that. And then over time, we, we understand more complexity, but we are limited by this idea of things in one slice in time with one name. Think of how you do this with people that you know. Somebody you know, and they have a name, and you fix them. This is especially useful practice to do with a family member. And you fix, you know, mother, daughter, sister, brother, sibling. And you have a fixed view of that, that being. And then at some point, you realize Wow, they are not fitting into my picture. Sometimes it's great. Somebody does something that like, well, you don't do that. And it's like, well, I just did it. And they're like, no, you know, that doesn't fit into my story of what you do when you don't do. You don't do that. You know, you don't like peas. Why are you eating the peas? Or whatever it might be. Can you feel, I'm going on about this because there's a way that this noun view of the world is a very, um, it's a thing we have to cut through to see impermanence. Breath. Breath. Is the breath, you've been with the breath for all these days, is the breath any one thing that the word breath even begins to capture? There's a wonderful artist, Louis Schwartzberg. Yeah, I think that's how you say it, Schwartzberg, who does time-lapse photography of plants growing. And it's so beautiful. You just see how, you just see the flower. But he shows the flower growing and budding and opening and closing a little and opening with each day. And you feel the aliveness of the flower. There's a flower in the desert where I live, in Moab is where I'm from. And uh, evening, there's an evening primrose, which is this very beautiful, can be very big blossomed plant. But the blossoms only last one day, one night really. And so when you look at the plants, when you're walking through the desert and you see them, what you mostly see is all the ones that have withered and fallen. And there might be one or a few, and then all the ones. And so you're very aware of the temporality of that. But can you also feel the preciousness in that? 
I remember for a while in the past they used to we used to have um, live flower bouquets up here, which were really it was lovely. And then it got to be too complicated, I guess, to keep that going. And so for a while, there were these beautiful silk flowers that somebody had made. And they were really very, very nice. But there was something about them that wasn't the same. The preciousness of them, the temporality had passed, wasn't, wasn't there in it. So there's some part of us that really sees and understands how the impermanence, the truth of the impermanence and the preciousness of it. In this impermanence, as we see it, part of what we're recognizing is that everything is in flow and contact with everything else. If everything was solid and unchanging, we would be disconnected. Nothing would affect anything else. But it's because of the impermanent nature of everything constantly in change that there is a basic non-separation, a contactfulness. The changing weather affects us, right? We're in communication with that weather. There's no separate, isolated, independent existence. And this impermanence is the, is the display of that. This is from Matthew Ricard. One of the main pursuits of Buddhism is to bridge the gap between the way things appear and the way things are. That approach does not come just from a curiosity to investigate phenomena. It arises from the understanding that an incorrect perception of reality is inevitably leads to suffering. When we think things aren't going to change... We are disappointed. Sometimes, sometimes we're relieved. It's good to remember that too. But we tend not to... One of the ways that we see ourselves, too, that we identify, remember the third one, that are you going to identify with what is impermanent and what is undependable or unsatisfactory? We, we can, if we cling to that solidity, we will have suffering. And this identification with what changes, I can remember back, I used to be a very strong um, outdoor person, and I could walk 25 miles one day in the mountains and do it again the next day. That's not going to work now, I promise. But we all go through that in different things, right? I've watched a lot of people who are mothers or fathers 
that then their kids, the empty nest. And then it's like, okay, who am I now? Somebody who has worked and becomes retired. Who am I now? This is a poem called Evolution from Rosemary Watula Tromer. There comes a time when the life you have meets the life you once had, and you stare at that old life as if it's a beautiful bird with a haunting song so familiar you can't stop yourself from singing along. Isn't it strange how quickly things change, how already you've forgotten some of the words, how already your wings have changed color? But when we cling to something that has passed, that the impermanent nature, we create suffering. In a way, we're arguing with reality. Don't argue with reality. Matthew Ricard, he says that the incorrect perception of reality inevitably leads to suffering. So this willingness to be with the impermanence, to not, to say yes to that and to step into it and to witness it and watch it, to be alive with it. Gregory Orr says, if to say it once and once only, then still to say yes. And say it complete. Say it as if the word filled the whole moment with its absolute saying. Later for but, later for if. Now only the single syllable that is the beloved, that is the world. Yes. This moment is like this, and the next moment will be different. Again and again and again. And from the Buddha, impermanent are all component things. They arise and they cease. That is their nature. They come into being and they pass away. Release from them is bliss supreme. This is a very familiar chant, Anicca Vata Sankara, which I think you'll maybe be doing later this evening. Another translation of it. All conditioned things are impermanent. To rise and fall is their truth. Having arisen, they will cease. This stilling brings happiness. From Naomi Shehab Nye, adios. It is a good word rolling off the tongue. No matter what language you were born with, use it. Learn where it begins, the small alphabet of departure. How long it takes to think of it, then say it, then be heard. Marry it. More than any golden ring, it shines, it shines. Wear it on every finger till your hands dance, touching everything easily, letting everything easily go. Strap it to your back like wings or a kite tail, the stream of air behind a jet. If you, know, if you are known for anything, 
Let it be the way you rise out of sight when your work is finished. Think of things that linger, leaves, cartons and napkins, the damp smell of mold. Think of things that disappear. Think of what you love best, what brings tears into your eyes. Something that said adios to you before you knew what it meant or how long it was for. Explain little, the the word explains itself. Later, perhaps, lessons following lessons, like silence following sound. And we come also to this selfless aspect of these ever-changing phenomena. All around us, the natural world is such a great teacher. When we go out in the woods, on the fields, and do you notice that they're in that changing world? Like there's not a sense that you have to be someone, that you need to be the person someone else expects you to be. There's a way that the natural world is offering us this wisdom of the changing interplay of phenomena. You can feel it here, and I'm sure you have. When we're not interacting with other people, when we don't have to put on the self, there's a way that we can see that we're just this flow of experiences. One meditation, the next. The mood from the mist and the fog, the feeling of the bright sun, constantly changing. We're in full contact with it all, but it's impersonal. Impersonal. Not I, me, and mine. Just phenomena. There's in the Buddha, it's, it's now a bumper sticker. Perhaps you've seen it. Empty phenomena rolling on. That includes us, just constantly changing. Think of how many feelings, moments of practice, breaths, hindrance attacks, calm, contentment, stillness, sounds, how much you have been in contact with Every moment, just passing, passing, passing. And if you identified, which you might have done at some point, this is what happens within it, with the hindrance attack, right? I'm the one who can't do this. We've brought that up. You know, or I'm the one who can't figure out why we're doing this. Or there's something else I'm supposed to be doing. You know, all the stories we come up with, are these temporary places where we identify with a set of thoughts and tell a story about me. And then, a moment later, an hour later, we see that it's just thoughts going by. And that that identification was just this grasping to a thought. 
all going by. This is just part of a poem from Daniel Bayless. You are but a collection of atoms working together in temporary harmony before being dispersed back into the universe. That's it. So what does this understanding, as we understand and we come into closer contact with this impermanence, what does that do for us? And the big thing it does is it cuts through the clinging. Whether something is pleasant or unpleasant, we recognize that it's going to change and it's not worth the suffering of clinging to it. There was, um, I noticed this phenomena. You may, you may have your own, but this was mine. Every time I went on retreat, especially the first day of the retreat, I'd be assigned a room, or if I was at a retreat where it was camping, I'd get myself a campsite. And I had a lot, I always had a lot of opinions about what was good about the room, what was bad about the room, that there was certainly a better room that I could have had that I don't have. And I could sort of, sometimes I sort of said, well, it's because, you know, I used to be an architect and I'm, you know, sensitive to spaces. And it's like, crap. It's just clinging. It's just clinging and wanting something, right? And this, and then after a while, I started to recognize that you know, this is, this is part of what I do, and okay, it's, you know, and I cling for a while. But then it turned out the cure was different than I thought it would be. So I had this opportunity to go to Asia and to practice. And being, you may have sensed, sort of a, an outdoor mountain person, it was really wonderful. I had an opportunity to go into the mountains in the foothills of the Himalaya in Bhutan, and go to a temple up high, and I was going to go practice there. So I did. So it was, you know, it's an epic journey, right, to get there. All many airplanes. It was many days driving and across these really curvy roads, and then this big hike up to this place. And along the way, trying to acclimatize, I got... Um, I got sick, I got bronchitis in my lungs, so I'm like sort of barely hanging on. And then I hike up, and I'm now in the winter, in the Himalayas at 11,600 feet, and I've gotten to my fabulous place to practice. You can tell. So there's a wonderful temple further up the hill. Where I am is in this shed. It's basically a shed. With there's somebody at the end of the shed. I have a middle spot in the shed, and then through some walls and stuff was somebody else. And I have um, a room that I walk into, and and then another room next to it. And um, the room it, it has a, it has a few difficulties, but one of the difficulties is that there's a window, but the glass is broken. So it turns out I don't actually have any protection from the elements in the temperature. 
So that was a little bit of a disadvantage. And to the... <laughs> and to the aesthetic in me, it had this, oh, about 132nd... You know, it all has to be carried up there, right? So 132nd um, thick, funny plywood thing like that's just sort of tacked to the walls. That's what the interior of the walls is. And there's one outlet that it turns out at irregular, unpredictable times has electricity. <laughs> and I have one cooker to cook in that turns out only has high and off. You're getting the picture. But I thought, oh, this is fine. Okay, I'm an outdoor practitioner. I'm just going to go out and do most of my practice outside. So the first day I go outside and I have a yoga mat with me. And so I set it down on the ground. I go somewhere and I sit and I'm, I'm there and I'm practicing. And I'm there maybe like 15, 20 minutes. And I open my eyes and I look down at the yoga mat. And there is an army of ticks marching towards me. I have never seen anything like it. It's like, okay, I guess I'm not practicing outside. <sighs> so I had to succumb to the fact that in addition to doing the whole retreat in an expedition weight down jacket and buried under blankets and I couldn't really work at it very hard because I had I was really sick. I had this bronchitis. And when the when the power would come on, I'd heat some water. It was there was nothing to be done. Nothing to be done. And so I did nothing. I just did a lot of my practice laying down. I could sit on the porch. That seemed, that seemed to work okay. On the sort of front door stoop. And an amazing thing happened. My mind became so calm and content. The conditions were clearly unchangeable. I was too sick to practice. There is nothing to be done. Ease, contentment, happiness, they just came. You might imagine I haven't complained about a room at Spirit Rock since. <laughs> but I did learn that the happiness of the mind had nothing to do with the conditions. It was a kind of peace that was not reliant. Ajahn Shah talks about this. He talks about two kinds of peace. He says there are two kinds of peace. One is the peace that comes through samadhi. The other is a peace that comes through panya, wisdom. The mind that is peaceful through samadhi is still deluded. The peace that comes through the practice of samadhi alone 
is dependent on the mind being separated from mind objects. There's a secluded, not being disrupted, is what he's pointing to. He says, if you, but peacefulness is useful, if you have reached the necessary level of calm, then use the calm of samadhi to practice with sight, smells, taste, tactile sensations, and the mind. Practice with the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. Reflect upon this and the entire world. When you have contacted this sufficiently, it is all right to reestablish the calm of samadhi. He goes on, the peace which arises through panya, wisdom, is distinctive because when the mind withdraws from the state of calm, the presence of wisdom makes it unafraid of forms, sounds, smells, tastes, tactile sensations, and ideas. It means that as soon as there is sense contact, the mind is immediately aware of the mind object. As soon as there is sense contact, you lay it aside. As soon as there is sense contact, mindfulness is sharp enough to let it go right away. This is the peace that comes through Panya. So when the mind is at its most calm, what what should you do? Train. Practice with it. Don't be scared of things. Don't attach. He's pointing to this ability to let go again and again and let the impermanent, changing, pleasant, unpleasant world be what it is. And just as my story shared, I tend to teach a lot of retreats in nature. And if you've spent time out in the woods, it's a great place for practice because you realize you can't control it. Nobody can turn the thermostat up or down, change the clouds or the sun or the rain. It all comes and goes. And there's a way we can recognize that. It's a great relief. And the more we practice with what is not so comfortable, the more we let ourselves experience the unpleasant and discover that we're okay with it, then the more ease we have, the less fear that something is going to come across our way that we can't work with. You've been practicing this. All the, whenever you sit on the cushion, you are practicing meeting the conditions. And sometimes you think that where you're getting the most from is the contentment and the stillness and the, those lovely moments. And those are beautiful because they help you know that part. But also being in contact with the difficult and the unpleasant You're building your capacity. Oh, this is what's here now. And I'm still okay. 
oh, and now this, a hindrance attack, I'm okay. Too hot, too cold, I'm okay. An itching foot, an ache in my back. Thoughts of the past, planning of the future. Eh, I'm okay. From William Blake, he who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. This willingness to actually be in the impermanence and see the preciousness of it. The faith in ourselves that we can handle in it. This deep, profound equanimity. A quote from Ajahn Chah that you're probably familiar with, but so apropos. One day, some people came to the master and asked, how can you be so happy in a world of such impermanence where you cannot protect your loved ones from harm, illness, and death? The master held up a glass and said, someone gave me this glass, and I really like this glass. It holds my water admirably, and it glistens in the sunlight. One day the wind may blow it off the shelf, or my elbow may knock it from the table. I know this glass is already broken, so I enjoy it incredibly. I used to get so upset when something, when I broke something. And now I realize it's already broken. It's all already broken. Ruth King sums sums this up as things are not permanent, not perfect, and not personal. So I'll end with a poem from Tijitsu, who was an 18th century abbot, uh, abbess of, uh, in Japan, of Hakujun. She saw, the, she saw that arising arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that knowing this arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this. No ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. So I hope this talk this evening has given you the the courage that when tomorrow morning we begin to open up the instructions and invite you into impermanence, you know that it is worth your trouble and there's more adventure and mystery 
and wisdom available before you. Let's sit for a moment. She saw that arising arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that knowing this arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this. No ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held. Nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. Thank you for your kind attention. We'll come back in 30 minutes for the final sit and chanting. Oh, there's a um, new chanting sheet outside. So if you're coming in, please grab the one of those chanting sheets when you come. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.